The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of The Walking Dead we're discussing before you listen to this podcast. Hello and welcome to Slate's The Walking Dead podcast. I'm Mike Volo, senior producer here in Washington, D.C. Joining me, as always, from New York City is video producer Chris Wade. Hey, Chris. Hey, Mike. So, Chris... The anti-penultimate episode of The Walking Dead, we did not get an advanced screener for this, which is why we're so late. It's called Spend. There's a lot going on in this episode. I got to be honest with you, just about none of it, narratively, stylistically, was to my liking. I don't even really know where to begin. So I'm just going to throw it to you and let you focus on whatever it is that you think was important here. Well, what I feel like this episode did was kind of bring all the stuff that we suspected about the Alexandrians to the forefront or that alternately that we suspect through Rick's group, which is that they suck at doing everything. And they suck so bad at doing everything, it's kind of hard to imagine how they've lived so harmoniously, seeing as they're so willing to just let people die on a day-to-day basis from everyday walker attacks and sloppiness. We see in this episode both Somebody blow up an entire rescue mission by shooting at a guy with a grenade strapped to his chest after he's already down. And a horde of walkers attack a routine work crew to which the Alexandrian's response was, leave leave everyone behind to go. Yeah, it's like a community of people who have as their motto sort of the opposite of leave no man behind. It's like leave everyone behind and get out. Yeah, act like an idiot and then leave whoever behind can't make it. Oh, God, I just had such problems with this episode right from the very beginning, from the cold open where we see the return of Gabriel standing at a pulpit tearing apart his Bible, rending the good book page by page, and then glancing or glowering, I should say, heavenward, his cross-clutching crises of faith over and over again. Yo, where did he get his second little priest collar? Right. He He burned the first one and now he has one again. Did he have like a stash of them in his pocket? Does he keep them in his wallet like condoms? I forgot he burned it in the fire that they were using to cook the dog meat. Ay, ay, ay. This... (laughs) character has just gone from bad to worse. And he sort of bookends the episode, not exactly, but he comes up again at the very end and tells Deanna that this crew, Rick and the rest, cannot be trusted. And to directly quote one of my favorite lines of Big Lebowski, you're not wrong, you're just an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, right. They are clearly planning something. They, we have seen them planning something for, behind this community's back. But also, they saved your life on multiple occasions. You would be dead if not for them. And especially considering that you, in cold blood, denied salvation for your flock, yeah. preacher dude, to then go around. What is that? Let he without whatever cast the first whatever. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Were we playing Mad Libs here? Sin and Stone? Sin and Stone. And I mean, just the sanctimony, the hypocrisy here is hard to take in any character, but coming especially from Gabriel, who seems to have been imbued with these flaws from the very beginning, it's impossible at this point. I don't know why they're continuing on with this character. And they kill off a character who was quickly becoming one of my favorites, Noah. He and Aiden both die in this episode. Aiden, by the way... Explain to me, Aiden is Deanna and Reg's son, Reg the architect, yes, husband of Deanna. 
How did two people like Deanna and Bredge, who seem to be educated, thoughtful, presumably good parents, how did they have such a shit like Aiden as a child? It doesn't make any sense. I feel like that's a classic archetype. <laughs> he would be like a, a gossip girl kid if the apocalypse had not happened. A privileged son of well-off intellectuals who uses his intellectual prowess and financial stability to just go be shitty everywhere. He would probably, like, wrap a very expensive sports car around a telephone pole at age 19, right? Oh, if only he had done that, and then we wouldn't be reckoning with him now. Mm -hmm. So he and Noah both end up dying in what I feel like is a more gory, a more gruesome kind of show of death than The Walking Dead has ever really done before. It's almost like they've been compensating for a lack of huge zombie set pieces in the last few episodes. There have been a few good gore moments and i've especially been noticing that there have been a lot of good bludgeoning zombie deaths uh-huh. like not just good zombies being shot but um you know a lot of good zombies getting their heads smashed in which is gruesome but on a small scale since you know it's just one zombie and at this point we've seen so much gooey zombie violence it's kind of removed from reality but yeah there are a lot of a. Uh, guts being taken out of people's bodies while they're still alive and screaming in this episode that we haven't seen in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And they really focused on Noah's face, making Mm -hmm. us feel even more awful about him dying, especially after we see in the beginning of the episode that he meets with Reg and wants to learn how to, quote, build things, which is really superficially what he wants. He wants the power to maintain his own secure future, in a sense. He wants to be able to continue to live here long after Reg is gone. And of course, that's not to be. I thought it was a real shame that they ended up killing Noah. He was becoming, I think, a strong character. Yeah. In his own uh, subtle way, he was um, kind of a good replacement for Tyrese in that like strong but sensitive Mm -hmm. type of mold. Strong in that he can hold his own and um, in combat, but sensitive in that he clearly has a lot more going on. Strike another tally on the the expendable black character board. Yeah, and also, uh, as the actor who played Tyrese was, a nuanced performer, I thought. Yeah, he was good. A couple of things I wanted to ask you about. One was during this scene where Abraham, that you alluded to, where Abraham is helping gather more of these corrugated metal panels to reinforce and or expand the wall... One of the Alexandrians says to Abraham at some point when he needs to go off into the woods and use the bathroom, he says euphemistically, I need to send a fax to Cleveland. Now, <laughs> you're a native Ohioan, so I thought maybe you could explain that to me. You know, I've not heard that one before. The only thing I can say <laughs> that comes to mind for you associatively is that that maybe exists in the same realm as the Cleveland steamer of scatological Cleveland references. Now, I'm a Cincinnatian, so I have a beef with Cleveland as just from being on the other side of the state, as you do when you live in a state and there are two big cities on the either side of it. Naturally, one has beef with the other. But this is not a time to go into my... uh, to go into my gripes with Clevelanders. I don't think I know what a Cleveland steamer is, but I, you know what? I don't even want to know. Yeah, so this I'm is just not gonna, the time or place. Yeah, you, just... you all know out there in podcast land, wink, wink. The other line that I wanted to ask you about in that same sequence was when Abraham was surrounded by walkers and he says, Mother Dick. <laughs> That's a good line. <laughs> is that just a Walking Deadism? Is that is that a phrase <laughs> that so. I should know? 
I always like when um when characters in anything kind of have their own language or parlance or idioms, and I think that that's just a good Abrahamism. I think that that character has gone a long way from when we first met him being like kind of broad military trope guy mm-hmm. to now having his own seemingly his own inner life, and now we know a little more about his backstory, of course, than we have for a while. I also really like that moment, keeping with the uh, PTSD theme mm-hmm. of this season, that moment where he kind of zones out or zonks out while he's doing work and has what's looking like the beginnings of a, of maybe a panic attack or something as he's leaning on that truck and kind of reaching for air. And the moment that he realizes that there is danger afoot, he kind of snaps back into reality and goes straight into command mode. Mm-hmm. And from what I am aware of PTSD-like symptoms, that seems consistent. I, I guess I'm in the end, I'm praising Walking Dead's surprisingly humane grasp of that particular set of traumas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he kind of got his mojo back, though, after that episode mm-hmm. and became the leader that he had been before. And in fact, Tobin, who was leading that crew, then tells Deanna that he's essentially ceding control to Abraham because he can do it better. Yeah, to Tobin's credit. I mean, again, I think that stuff like that is is indication that there isn't something sinister going on in the Alexandrians other than their, their sinister lack of spine. He may be <laughs> shitty at being a leader and a field commander, but at least he's self-aware enough to say, my bad, and this other guy is clearly objectively better at doing this and so to save lives he should do it which is you know you know it might be a fault to be a coward on the battlefield but it's not a fault to be practical in the aftermath possibly my least favorite development in this episode among many that i was unhappy with was this subplot involving now rick and carol and the andersons pete and jesse and their kid sam we find out through an interaction between carol and the kid sam that Pete is beating Jesse and possibly Sam too. We kind of knew that something was going on with that character. He because had he shown, was day drunk? Yeah, he was day drunk and he had shown some signs earlier of being moody and not quite as welcoming as some of the other Alexandrians. You, <laughs> you show me a day drunk dad in any form of televisual or cinematic medium, and I'll show you an abusive husband. <laughs> yeah, or one, one leads comedy, directly maybe. to the other. I don't know. Michael Keaton may have been day drunk in Mr. Mom. I'm not sure. Was Michael Keaton in Mr. Mom? <laughs> yeah, oh man. Gosh. So early on in the episode, Rick talks to Jesse about the broken window theory of policing. You keep the windows <laughs> intact. You keep society in, intact. In the most glossed over way of describing that theory possible. Right. And of course, it was planting the seed for what we would later learn. And what I don't understand, so now they know that Pete is abusive, right? And mm-hmm. Carol comes to Rick with this information. And the episode ends with her telling Rick that there's only one way this is going to go down. And that's you killing Pete. Why? Why is that the only way? I don't understand. They went right to the most extreme solution to the problem. Explain to me why there's no middle ground here. Why can't Carol, in her now newfound role as the demure homemaker, why can't she go to Deanna and say, you know, I had a conversation with Sam and it seems to me perhaps his father is abusive 
what can we do about this? Okay, I will try to play devil's advocate here and game out that situation and say, in their minds, in the minds of Rick and Carol, Carol having dealt with an abusive husband in the context of a zombie apocalypse. So she has about as much direct experience with this as possible in given the circumstance. But let's say you do negotiate a separation of this guy from his family within the rules and context of Alexandria. It's not like they're going to cast him outside the walls. He's still going to be hanging around there. And in that small of a community, I don't think that she imagines that there will be enough ability to separate this familial unit. How many Alexandrians do we think there are? A hundred? Two hundred? Maybe? Less than a hundred. Something like that. It seems like less than a hundred to me. Effectively remove this domestic threat from the life of this kid and this mother, nor will he consent to it, nor also in the context of this community, you know, she lobs the accusation and that, you know, when you're in an 80-person community and you're one of the patriarchs of a family, you have one eightieth of the authority of the community. It's going to be hard to get this all into daylight and maybe he has too much sway over his family in in kind of an emotionally manipulative or abusive way. I mean, I don't know. So therefore, murder is the answer. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That is the best I can do to justify their thought process on this. Certainly, I hope they're not planning on, like, assassinating him in his sleep or, like, arsenicking him. All right, Chris, I think we're going to have to leave it there because I'm getting booted out of the studio here in D.C., but just a quick prediction for the penultimate episode. Give me one sentence. What's gonna, what are we going to see? Uh, Glenn and Eugene come back from their run and start fucking everybody up for the disaster that it was, and uh, Rick and Carol join in the brawl because they see no other way to assert their authority over these milk toasts. And so Gabriel was right after all. Yeah. Okay, I'll talk to you next week. Talk to you later, Mike.